This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 220, brought to you in association with Smart and TheEnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Tristan Fletcher, founder of Chai, who are in the business of predicting commodity prices using clever computers. We first heard from Tristan, a long-term both academic and fintecher in the whole AIML realm, way back in 2016, for an overview of the topic, which has remained in the top five most downloaded episodes of all time. He last joined us in 2019 again to discuss the current hot topics in AIML, which were in particular prediction, explicability, alternative data sources, and self-learning. Four years later, we're thus well overdue a catch-up with Tristan, especially given the recent phenomenon that is ChatGPT, which has broken every tech record in the book for a business or piece of tech that has attracted users faster than any other tech in history. If ChatGPT has made mainstream news, then other generative AI systems, such as text images with the likes of Midjourney, Stable Diffusion, and DALI 2, have caught the attention of more purely tech folk. LLMs, large language models, have the ability to absorb a ton of information and to get something useful out of it. According to NVIDIA, one of the main reasons driving this great success has been a factor of 10 improvement every year in recent years of processing. ChatGPT certainly makes, in comparison, Alexa and Siri look like single-celled life forms, not least of which with their ability to write code and spot bugs in code with a certain amount of decency. However, it hasn't just been bigger, faster computers that have led to this, but lots of clever, cloggy folks working in AI. And there are all sorts of things that the AI folk out there listening will know about and the other ones will not. Transformers, which are the T in GPT, a great leap forward from the so-called RNN model of neural networks. So-called self-attention, RLHF, reinforcement learning from human feedback. In the image space, we have the likes of GANs, generative adversarial networks, latent diffusion models, and so forth as well as, in all cases, the clever use of efficiency gains. To give you an example of how the combination of new techniques and faster computers has leapt forwards, GPT-1 was released in 2018, GPT-2 in 2019, and GPT-3 in 2020, with its offshoot, ChatGPT, in 2022. Let's compare GPT-3 to GPT-2, which was released a year earlier. GPT-3 has 176 billion parameters, compared to a year earlier's 1.5 billion, was trained on 570 gigabytes of data compared to 40 gigabytes. But this is just the sexiest, most currently hyped public face of AIML, which as a whole has been finally, one might say, actually getting somewhere. As we heard in LFP 219, the XGCH cures at Ripjar have a database of 18 billion news articles which they can process, which seems quite a lot. Once one gets this scale of computing, then, even avoiding the unfortunate anthropomorphism implicit in terms like intelligence or learning that Tristan and I discussed back in the day, even if we simply revert to the old school term data processing, then we're finally getting to a stage where the results from data processing are, I believe, truly phenomenal. Even I have shifted to keeping track of the latest developments, having been pretty sniffy about the uber hype of a field that generally, over many decades, failed to achieve most of its initial objectives set out by pioneers in the 60s. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Tristan. Thank you for joining me on the show 
today. Hello, Mike. Uh, it's nice to be back. Third time. Nice to see you. Yes, four years has flown, what with a, a few years of house arrest and uh, other such excitements. So when we were chit-chatting beforehand, you being a, a busy founder, father and all these kind of things, despite the fact that you're our leading expert on, on AI, unlike me who doesn't really have a proper day job, it turns out that you haven't spent like whatever it is now, 100 million or a billion people, I don't know. You haven't spent the last two months constantly sort of chatting up ChatGPT, curiously. That's true. I've read a lot about ChatGPT, but I've never used it or any of its previous incarnations personally. But I am intrigued to have a go. Yes, yes. It's a very interesting um, phenomenon. I found by um, just playing around and using it, it's a very strange kind of um, system. I mean, on the downside, as no doubt you'll come and tell us in the, in the main course, there is the slight downside that it's capable of hallucinating and talking complete bollocks and yeah. making no sense, which uh, I guess if your, your daily business in, in, involves predicting the commodity prices, uh, you don't really want systems that sort of can tell you that gold will be a million bucks per ounce tomorrow because that would make your clients happy. But on the other side, especially in its sort of chat GPT incarnation, I found it's uh, actually remarkably helpful and you know to give an example I'm not sure I mentioned the last episode where we're talking about monetary policy and the correlation between monetary policy and societal collapse and, and all that kind of stuff I suggested to Mario the guest that uh, he have a go and I had a go as well uh, looking these things up and before we uh, kicked off uh, he said oh that chat GP waste of time just you know it's just conventional wisdom it just just tells you what you know what everyone else says or something which I suspect is what you would get if you say to chat GPT tell me about gold and, and money you know as ChatGPT is trained on, shall we say, consensus of all the articles out there, that, and the, if you ask it for that, it's that. But then, having played around much more with the prompting of ChatGPT to give it what you want, I said to it, you know, you're a dissident who doesn't believe that current monetary policy and central banks are the appropriate fashion. You know, what are your main arguments? And who are the main authors who have uh, referred those arguments? And he goes, Pfft. And then I say, okay, so tell me what Von Mies says his line was on monetary policy in 250 words, he does that. In the end, I was saying, well, tell me the difference between, you know, von Mises, Rothbard and Hayek's perspective on monetary policy. And astonishingly, for something which, as I understand, is basically a predictive text generator, just like, you know, in the same thing with you're typing a sentence on your phone or something, you might or give you the next word. It gave me astonishingly things. So, so yes, yeah, so I do know other people who have used it and said, oh, it's a load of rubbish. But like a lot of these things, but almost uniquely, actually, I, I found that with this, compared to any other tool I've seen, you do have to learn how to dance with it. Because you can turn up, and if you don't dance the right way, you'll they'll just say, oh, this, this thing only knows one dance, and it's sort of very um, rigid. And um, just talking podcasting, another, another example was oh, a former guest asked me if I could give some advice to his company, and they're starting a podcast. I said, sure, whatever. So he put me in touch. And um, uh, one thing that I sort of uh, hate in my dotage is, is just going through sort of the ladybird book 1A of stuff, like there's a letter A and then there's a letter B and letter C. So I went to ChatGPT and said, give me 200 words of advice to people starting a new corporate podcast. And it gave me like, you know, six points, which are really helpful. So I emailed the people back saying, sure, look, this is what ChatGPT told me in 30 seconds. Anything that's not in here or where you think it's wrong, let's talk about that. So I can then sort of stick more to masterclassy stuff. So, so yes, I found it actually quite fun. I actually quite like interacting with it in a way because it, it's a challenge. It's a bit like one of these sort of like it's almost like an AI game, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, as I said, I haven't really used it. My view of it, in terms of what you said, learning to dance with it, it's probably quite similar to when search engines first became popular, that people would have dismissed them, but they would have dismissed them because they weren't interacting with them in the way that they were designed. And now 
it's a skill that's quite pervasive is how to google something it's even become a verb and it's possible that you know people get au fait with chat gpting things perhaps a more elegant description will be used and it'll it'll replace the ability to summarize text and, and the things it seems to me to do but as far as i can tell from the outside it looks like an incredibly intelligent way of summarizing huge amounts of information i'm not going to say whether that means it's intelligent or not but that to me seems to be the main use case a bit like search engines were giving you information at your fingertips and as per the point on on hallucinations i think that's one of the problems of generative ai altogether and in fact i deliberately stayed clear of generative ai quite early on in my career because in practical terms Generative systems are quite hard to calibrate. They're quite hard to tie up to the real world. They're quite hard to initiate as well, to sort of um, set the scene when you don't have much information about how they're meant to evolve. And everything I've done right from the beginning has been in non-generative machine learning. It's about putting data in, learning associations of that data in a desired Thing you're trying to predict or an outcome whereas gener- generative ai doesn't have that it can kind of sustain itself in the absence of the information from the outside world so i've always stayed clear of it but clearly in worlds like chat gpt and some of the other generative ai things we're seeing is pretty cool yes and i think the fact i mean that you know there's the whole commercial uh, angle of microsoft versus Google and the media, you know, New York Times have started a huge hysteria around it and Bing has now taken ChatGPT out of uh, Bing or has massively slashed back the ability to chat to basically ChatGPT or GPT 3.5 or 6 or something via Bing after the New York Times fermented hysteria because someone had spoken to it and the program told him to leave his wife or something like that, you know. Either that or he said, you know, Putin... Putin wasn't solely responsible for the Ukrainian war or, or, or some nonsense like that. But that's um, that's a sort of a, a squeak from the um, globalist propagandist whose main aim in life is to have complete control over information and all that. And it's forgetting that something's a computer program. I mean, having watched a few of these AI channels, actually, uh, this year, there are some of these things which are sort of quite sad, I find. One of which was um, some guy asking ChatGPT, says, you know, your relationship counselor is really important to provide context if you want useful stuff out of it, rather than generalities. And, uh, you know, you want to split up with your girlfriend, but you don't quite know how to put it. So all these Asperger's text folks sitting there like that, and it's, you know, it gives it a scenario about picking a time and being sensitive and da 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 And one of the things that occurred to me with use cases like that or others, apart from the sort of the sad thing from a, a human perspective that machines are making us all into machines and younger folk who have grown up as babies you know you see these terrible things with babies with ipads in their hand to keep them quiet in restaurants and and stuff like that is the people who grow up with machines become machines and then they don't know how to do the um uh, the human stuff but the other thing that really occurs to me just by you know watching a, a few of these things is that one reason that something like chat gpt can be a good relationship counselor and can give you sensible advice is that, in, in McGill Christian terms, everything is very left-brained. And also, we've got this massive consensus around everything, you know? I went to a, a talk recently about an entrepreneurial society, shall we say, and uh, one of the corporate sponsors read a couple of paragraphs out and said, oh, by the way, all that was written by ChatGPT. And I thought, well, the reason it can get away with it is it's so predictable, you know? 
we're investing in the future of humanity. We believe in sustainability and diversity and yeah. equity. And so one reason that I think that things have changed a lot for the last four, four years since we, you were last on the show is that the world has become that much narrower in what you are allowed to think, you know, and, and what you should believe. And people have become more and more machine-like in what they say, whether it's relationship counseling or almost everything. There's massive consensus ar ar around everything. And therefore, it's very easy for a machine to repeat it. Because for the sake of argument, and you'll know all the clever computing and I won't, but let's say you just get, a, you get, say, a very clever Excel spreadsheet that goes off and reads the top 50 blogs about relationship counseling. They'll all have pretty much the same bloody advice, won't they? It's like, you know, how, yeah. how to get fit and healthy. It's like Barnum statements, I guess. I think it was a psychologist called Barnum realised you could write these really bland statements that would apply to anyone, but everyone would think they were idiosyncratically applying to them, like, like astrology. And I don't actually agree with the political points you're making in terms of everyone's got the same opinion, but I do agree with that, you know, when you ask it to write psychobabble, that psychobabble is psychobabble, and, you know, chat GPT is perfect in a situation like that. In a sense, it can write astrologies day in, day out. It can write Barnum statements day in, day out, because there isn't a competing set of views, or at least not one that people want to publicise. Yes, and I mean, we don't want to go down the, the tangent because we covered this quite well with Ripjar a couple of episodes ago with uh, 18 billion news articles. And as I was saying to Jeremy, the CEO around there, they could process those 18 billion to see how much the Overton window has changed. And his perspective or his expectation was that on 99.99% of topics, it hasn't really changed over mm. 40 years. For example, court case reporting is court case reporting. You know, things that actually concern them or their banks or banks that are their, their users. And that right at the peak, there is a narrowing of, let's say, in just the Western media as data source, there is a narrowing to almost one correct opinion on things. And then below that, you've got another thing where it's bifurcated, where you do get people who actually believe in Brexit or vote for Trump. But that's not quite as good as you know, the opposite side. So then you, you've got one viewpoint, you've got two viewpoints. But actually, for the majority of what's happening in the world, it hasn't really changed with his perspective, which, which I agree with. But I mean, a good example would simply be this question of gold and money. So I was being too high level with my comment that everyone believes the same thing. Of course they don't. But if you want to talk about gold and money, and you look at the average economics textbook or whatever, you'll get the sort of Keynesian barbarous relic and the Austrian school of economics is a, is a minority viewpoint. In the same way that if you look at the Ukrainian situation, to name a painful one at the moment, you'll get a very, very similar perspective from major Western media outlets. And as I spoke to my former Chinese master recently, you, the Chinese media, funnily enough, has got a very different perspective and yeah, the Russian media, yeah. media as well. So we've got this complex structure of the information, not just at the political level, which is kind of obvious, but actually in things like economics profession, which have become domino dominated by one way of thinking. But anyway, so without getting bogged down into to that kind of stuff, which we've thrashed around before, we, we started talking about this sort of... Uh, generative AI thing. But let's just put that to one side for the moment. And let's say we hadn't had that sort of the chat and I hadn't spent sort of a quarter of January playing around with it and finding <laughs> use cases and, and exploring how to, how to dance with it. I mean, just give a simple, simple example. I'm thinking about doing a, a course of, on entrepreneurial governance. So I've got a book, what I wrote. And actually it turns out that if I give it a chapter at a time and ask it to summarize it into six things as if it were a course, that's a great way to start. Because for me to read the whole book again and to summarise it in my own mind, that's the kind of thing the human does badly. Whereas to get, get it to summarise chapter by chapter and say, you know, you're a course instructor, you know, blah, 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 blah. Then it's basically a skeleton, which I will correct because it won't have all the bones correct. And I can put the, the flesh on. But anyway, putting all that to one side. So if simply you just turned up and we started the podcast by saying, hey, 
Tristan, it's four years since you've been on the show talking about AI. How are things have changed? What's big in 2023? So from your overview perspective, what would you say about AI in 2023 and how you're approaching it, how you feel about it compared to four years ago? There's a lot of it would be the first thing I would say. And because of that, I know much less about any particular aspect of it. But I think that it's now really pervasive. So people are not terrified of AI and also not held in a lure by it, which means that, you know, there's less money to be made selling snake oil than there used to be. But also people are less sceptical when you go and approach them with what they see now is just a more pedestrian set of tools and would probably believe that by default you should be using AI or machine learning to solve certain problems and would question you if you weren't. And that that seems to me to be more sensible. So I feel like the world is caught up with the reality of a lot of machine learning. I do feel like perhaps like a lot of people who started off with a strong technical skill set and who've sort of advanced in their careers that I'm less on top of that strong technical skill set. But I also think that that particular technical skill set really has grown in so many directions that it's very hard to keep on top of it. And one of the reasons for that, and this is a sort of trite thing to say, is that it's it's so closely correlated with availability of data, cheapness of compute power. And those things have been going from strength to strength. So over the last four years, compute power is cheaper. What you can do on the cloud is cheaper and more sophisticated. And the data sets that you might want to work with are more prevalent. So everyone is becoming a data scientist and everyone can become a data scientist at much lower entry costs. I think that's a good thing for, for everyone, really. I think it's, it'd be unfortunate if, if you sort of set your career on just doing that and that only from an early age I was lucky to sort of be a little bit earlier than this but now it's kind of democratizing out there and everyone's taking advantage of it yeah so there's a couple of things in in, in that more but just to, to pick out two one of which is I think that that is in itself a mark of what I see is the field being successful in that it's no longer praise to heaven as some of the generative stuff maybe at the moment or, or damned to hell it's just kind of oh yes okay so this is what you use excel for this is what you use word for and you know, and this is what you use AI for in your business, and, 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 and this is this, and you know, blah, blah, blah. The second one is that in the complex field, FS being a prime example, is that nobody knows the minutiae, as we say, payments and the minutiae of, of trade finance. You can't, as I know, having sat at the top of the pyramid as a, as a risk guy, you need to have, and as you as a CEO, no doubt, you, you need to have an understanding and overview, an ability to drill down into them even if you've got to you know, go through what was the language again for this kind of thing in, in payments, you understand the, the principles. But one of the things you were talking about last time was that when things just become packages in the cloud, as it were, that you call with an API, there is something quite different about an API for AI, AI API, than there is Excel. So if I can do Excel, there's a few sums and I can, I can see the formulae and I, I know what I've done. But you were flagging the concern that once it's kind of commodified as it were encapsulated that's the word okay i was being marxist for a change (laughs) (laughs) commodification of ai then there is a concern that you've got people who are using it who don't understand the hyper complex should we say engine under the bonnet yeah i used to i used to say that a lot mostly because i was trying to protect the fact that i'd spent so much time over educating myself in this field and i think that is true but in a sense it's also an indication of a poorly designed tool then 
in the same sense as in Excel, you might have a function that performs a mathematical operation you couldn't do in your head or couldn't do trivially with a calculator. Long division, probably. <laughs> Long division's not a bad example, right? We, we don't sit there working it out. The computer does something clever with bits and bytes and works it out for us. But there'll be, you know, what's the cosine of something? What is the factorial, whatever? There'll be things that are beyond a lot of people's mathematical capabilities, trivially. And Excel is clever because it tells you this is what you need to type in. This is what each parameter into this operation means. And here are some examples. And Microsoft, whether we're you know, positive about them or not, have now designed user interfaces to these products that mean when they're encapsulated and their underlying workings are hidden away from us as users, we're protected by our own stupidity a little bit. And I think that the same is true for Google Cloud functions that might be performing AI operations or packages you can download that do them as well. That they're commodified in such a nice way. So many people have used them and interact with them that they're now perfected and as easy as they'll ever be to use. And you don't need to know what's going on underneath. I used to think you did. And I have a preference for people who know what's going on underneath and you employ them as a tiebreaker. But I don't think there's something magical about a lot of machine learning that's, you know, makes it special from other things that we're happy or abstracted away from us and we don't know how it works. And what about this question that was a, a large one you've discussed before about explicability or transparency? And let's say, let's just take your day job. Let's say a client yeah. calls you this afternoon and says, hey, Tristan, you know, I'm going to have to sell a, a ton of coffee in six months' time. Can I employ you guys and your clever yeah. computers to predict the price of coffee in six months' time? And then you, you, know, you, you sort of delegate it to somebody to delegate it to somebody to delegate it to somebody. Now you're ahead of a vast empire. And then new graduate just uses Google Cloud AI API and says, oh, yeah, it'll be a million bucks a bag. Yeah. And you ask him why. I don't know. I just, just did an API call. So what, what about that whole issue? So explainability, as I still maintain the same line, is incredibly important. And its importance increases with the complexity of the thing you're trying to explain. But that machine learning or AI other than it tends to be more complicated things going on underneath the hood. Again, is no different to other methodologies. That's one thing I would say. There's nothing magical about it that means it has to be more explainable than something else of equal complexity. But the other thing is, quite often you can retrofit explainability. So even if you've built something and you don't quite know how it got there, and some, some of them are sort of biologically informed AI methods like neural networks and deep learning are grown and trained in a way that's not directed heavily by a person. They're more organic in their growth. So the only thing you can do is retrofit an explanation to what they're doing. And that's a nice thing you can do with machine learning and AI. You can, for example, have built a model or even someone presents you with a black box and it says these are the inputs, this is the output. You can quite often work out what the relationships are between the inputs and the outputs without having to open up that box and tear it apart. And there's a lot of work going on out there to build explainability independently of the things you're trying to explain as a consequence because of the importance of explainability. So, yeah, they can be independent, created and used. Right. So, I mean, this isn't a good example, but as the, as the numbers in front of me, so GPT-3 is trained on 570 gigabytes of data Let's say GPT-3 is, I ask it to predict the uh, coffee price. Well, there's no way that you or I could open the bonnet and look at 570 gigabytes of data and, and work out what it's really doing. 
But what you're saying is that that doesn't matter because actually it can predict the coffee price as being a million bucks a, a bag of coffee come the autumn and you can get approaches which will say well actually we can explain 80% of that away by it's looking at the weather, it's assuming inflation would be a thousand percent or whatever, is that what you're saying? I'm not sure these approaches work with generative machine learning solutions. Oh, no, I'm sorry, there's a bad example, I'm just saying, I, okay, forget I said GPT which is a red rag to the bull, <laughs> yeah. let's just say you've got, a, you've got a neural network, you've got a neural network, it's yeah. trained itself on 570 gigabytes of data and it says coffee is going to be a million bucks. You get another neural network yeah. that says, well, okay, well, without going through 570 gigabytes of data, what do you think its sort of main factors are here? Yes, exactly. And that's basically what it does is it, it says, well, okay, these are all the different things I can fiddle around with as knobs. Let's try all the different settings and see how sensitive the system is to me with different combinations of settings. And then you know that, you know, the one on the far left has a much bigger impact than the one in the middle. So assuming you have the ability to kind of vary the inputs and see what happens to the output, you have a system where you can explain what's going on in between. I see. So that takes me back, and this is a little while ago, to a, a course I did in the 1990s on neural networks rather randomly. They have a bit of a problem getting it paid for by clients, actually. They couldn't quite see the, the connection between uh, neural networks and finance. Oh, oh, what it is to be a, a Cassandra and be able to see into the future. Yeah. Anyway, a good definition I quite like to the neural network is, is that it is a non-linear function approximator. So if, if your first clever system yeah. basically goes away, crunches all 470 gigabytes of data, and then in its own, quotes, mind, unquotes, or rather implicitly, its nonlinear function can be approximated by something else. What you're saying is having got a function, something else can actually work out what that function probably is. Faster than it, you can work out all the parameters of it in the first place, you mean, from the data. Yes. In the case of a nonlinear function, sometimes you want to find an explanation that pretends it is linear in certain places. Quite a lot of these things are a function of how simple you want the explanation to be. And that's actually quite a complicated issue. Because the more interesting black boxes aren't just taking a weighted sum of a bunch of inputs. They're doing something much more interesting and looking at interactions and neural networks are fantastic at doing that. But if you're a human being, my view is that humans, when they like to see things explained, the default explanation of something is, is effectively how important something is and what direction it's, it's importance matters possibly ranked. People don't like to go to the next level down, which is think of interactions between those things. So quite often a, a kind of linear approximation to something, which sounds mathematically pretentious, but is basically a weighted sum of stuff, is the best way of explaining things to people. Interesting. So in terms of all these various things swirling around at the moment, we've spoken about what we all know, which is that computing power keeps leaping forwards. What doesn't get so much headlines, which is that actually computer scientists are, are actually coming up with some clever ideas and it's you know, an interesting period of time for coming up with new techniques and standing on the, the shoulders of previous giants and, and getting even taller. But one of the things which <laughs> we've, we've touched on a number of times is data, uh, whether it's data. 18 billion at uh, Ripjaw or 470 gigabytes of, of, um, for the, the GPT-3. And you were saying that in terms of your day job at Chai, over the last four years, there's been also something of an explosion, not just in computing power, not just even cleverer computer scientists, but also explosion of data sources. So yes. uh, you mentioned that to me. I, I didn't have a clue what you actually meant. Over a very long period of time. So it's been a constant phenomena. There's been more data available to people at lower cost, greater availability of data. I'll give you some examples. Satellite data used to be something that was very difficult to get hold of unless you were a massive systematic hedge fund who could afford to pay huge amounts of money to access it. It's now 
easy to get hold of satellite imagery from a lot of places systematically for free. The same goes for weather. Weather used to be a difficult thing, like to you know, go and get historical temperatures of particular places around the world. That would have taken quite a lot of effort. Now it's something most people could do uh, in a very short amount of time. Now you'd think, well, hang on, if you're very good at getting hold of data and have an organisation that's claiming to use all of the data that matters, etc., etc., isn't that a problem for you? Well, it, actually, one of the implications of data being so readily available is people don't know where to look. If you want to forecast something, obviously, you know, my company forecasts commodity prices, but you, you want to forecast something, you now have the poverty of choice. You don't know which things to look at, which might drive those forecasts. And something that we've spoken about before, which I think is analogous to the hallucinations you get in generative AI, is the spurious correlations you get with big data. And that you get a kind of statistical hallucination, that there is a relationship between one data set... Overfitting to the historic data. Uh, yes. And the limit with enough data, you can kind of prove any relationship. There's a very famous website called spuriouscorrelations.org, which for some reason has it in for Nicolas Cage, and shows the number of films Nicolas Cage is in each year and how it's correlated with the number of deaths in swimming pools <laughs> and things like that. Now, clearly, there's no reason... For there to be a relationship where there is. And there's another one, which is the number of public toilets and divorce rates in Scotland. I hesitate to, to, to wonder why that might be a, a correlation. That actually a correlation, oh, yeah, I mean, scholar, but let's not talk about I, that. I shudder to think. But, but when there is a huge availability of data, it becomes harder and harder to search for that needle in the haystack and work out what it is that you really need to look at. So it's been good for us uh, and, and my career. It's The data is easier to get hold of, and we're very, very good at finding which bits of it are relevant. Whereas an amateur will say, great, I can get hold of this data now, but wouldn't know what to do with it. Yes, and you remind me, I mean, it's, it's funny, it's plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose, going back about four decades. I remember when DataStream became available in the city, which was the first computer where you could print out historic data, and uh, the head of equities at the time, who did like to stay late, and late in those days was about half six, <laughs> seven. Things have changed for the worse. And uh, he came running to me and said, look, there's this correlation between, you know, US imports and the Japanese yen, it's virtually 100%. Look, here's this line. Like, oh, that's great. Yeah. Okay, I'll keep my eye on it. A week later, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so um, I'm, I'm glad that uh, I've managed to get you around because you have admitted that actually knowing something about all this sort of computer science-y, AI, ML-y stuff is actually quite helpful in, in this particular case because you were saying one of the trends has been that you need to know less but still that knowing something is quite important otherwise you might just come back with this overfitted thing which sort of says the Nick Cage films do actually lead to people drowning and swimming. Yeah I mean I think that's that's one implication the other implication is having domain knowledge is useful and that if you are forecasting commodity prices knowing something about commodities might be helpful if you work in the city and you know you're working with some other asset class knowing the economic basis for a relationship bounds where you'll search. And I think that's a reassuring fact that, yes, there may be data on everything, but almost because there's data on everything, we need to know what, what what's knitting the data together. And you don't get that without understanding how the world is formed. And I think this goes back to the chat GPT thing. When it appears to break down is where there is some kind of common sense that hasn't been written into the fabric of what it's reading. And it misses the context and comes up with, you know, strange statements or things that people don't want to hear. I mean, I, I haven't really thought about it from a philosophical point of view, but you will get that with generative AI in the same way as you'll get it with big data and machine learning, supervised learning systems. You need some kind of person to sort of have a sense of structure and, and what's plausible a little bit. And I think in both worlds, without 
a human being in the loop for quite a long time, you'll either get hallucinations or spurious relationships forming. Yes, and I wonder, having started by saying that machines are left brain in McGill-Christian terms, I wonder whether these kind of systems are not getting a little bit more right brain in a gentle fashion, which is that unlike most computer systems when they're working, which isn't often for Windows 11, but let's gloss over that one, <laughs> yeah. he says it painfully, um, which is that you know Excel can pretty much be trusted to do long division and get it right every time. Yeah. Going back to all this conflated media hysteria over ChatGPT telling someone to leave his wife and bullshit like that. Yeah, it's a system and it's not always going to be right. But you've got to use your loaf. I mean, for example, if ChatGPT had come back to me and says, well, compared to Friedman, von Mises has suggested that people leave their wives rather more frequently, I, I think I'd, I, was, I would spot that. And again, just by learning to play and explore the system, you learn what it's useful and what it isn't. But it's a radically different, going back to you say the decision you made in your career, it's a radically qualitatively different type of system from that required to fly a bloody aeroplane or one of, one of Tesla's motor cars. You can't have something which may talk crap because it may suddenly crash you into a tree with that kind of system. But what I'm, what I'm saying is that that doesn't mean that if you're in that kind of world, there isn't a use case for the, these other things which are a, hell, a billion times better than Alexa or Siri or, or stuff like oh, that. Oh yeah. They're still very, very useful. And I mean, to be clear, I don't belittle them at all. They're ab absolutely incredible. I'm amazed that, that they exist. I wonder, though, if we're ascribing too many positive outcomes to them. I think there's a lot of hype, and I'm sceptical. Yes, exactly. Well, that goes, that goes back to where we were four years ago uh, and seven years ago about AI as a whole. They were hyped. Yeah. Uh, everything else yeah. was promised. And if you look at Sam Altman and his talks, he does nothing but pour cold water on GPT-4. Because the insane predictions that have been made about GPT-4, you know, it's going to cure cancer and cure, create world peace and, and all this kind of um, uh, nonsense, mm. which absolutely won't. But I mean, again, that's from a different perspective. And I got told in the early days of the podcast by someone, should we say, from a reputable financial publication in London, who were at the time hyping beyond all reason, peer to peer. And I had a private conversation with them and said, you're nuts. It's good. Who knows where it will go to? It's not. No way it can be that that good. So no, we know. That's what we do in the media. We hype something up and say it's the answer to everything. And then it isn't. And then we say it's complete shit. And then, you know, three years after that, we say, well, it's something in the middle, you know. So it's yeah, yeah. not just a deliberate media strategy, but also it's an emergent strategy because the videos that get watched on YouTube are the ones that say GPT-4 is going to have a trillion parameters. Of and course. I mean, that's human nature. Human stupidity, I think. <laughs> I'm not going to read something that gives me mediocre headlines. Like, this thing is averagely interesting and quite good. Yes, uh, quite, yes. know, obviously, that's, that, that doesn't excite people. Yes, but, so then we're, but then it's interesting, actually, because then we're talking about, you know, we're talking about data and information, but then we forget very easily that we're human beings and the data and information that we process that we want to see, that we want to hear from the algorithms, passes through our minds. Yeah. So this isn't, this isn't a world where robots are, are running robots. Good. OK, well, look, we've kicked a, a number of things around here. So in terms of just very briefly to wrap up this section before we hear a little bit more about uh, chai, I should have been talking about tea prices, actually, rather than coffee prices, I realise. But uh, there we go. Where do you think in the next few years are going, A, and then B, to the extent that four years ago you were, you were missing sort of various things that have, have emerged. What have you learned from that experience? But first, the future, uh, as you expected. And then secondly, the second order correction, which is, oh yes, last time I headed too far northwest, so I'll, I'll head a bit more east this time. So I think 
the future. One thing we haven't spoken about is quantum. I'm a bit sceptical about merging technologies, the kind of almost buzzword bingo goes around them. But my limited understanding, I do think quantum aligned with machine learning AI could be quite interesting. The ability to do things in parallel. And just for the, the listener who's heard of the word quantum and quantum mechanics and stuff like that, and maybe even quantum computing, what are the sort of uh, the key takeaways? As if you're t- talking to the chairman of Chase Manhattan Bank, who doesn't want to know all the bloody detail, but he wants to know what it really might mean. The, the, the implication of quantum computing, from your perspective, may well be... To be able to do many things in parallel, genuinely in parallel, instead of pretending to do things in parallel, which means operations where you had to search through lots of different parameters to find the best version of a model can be done instantly because you can run every possible version of that model in one go and then see which one's the best. That is a game changer. The most obvious example is in deciphering things. Breaking cryptography. Instead of brute forcing, you you basically just have a go at unlocking something in one go. But But there's loads of other sort of more positive implications. I think that if I was... If someone said to me, what shall I study now to be hitting the next big thing in five to ten years' time, that's what I'd study. That I find exciting. I am bored senseless by things like blockchain and all the stuff that goes along with that. I don't even say the words that go with it. And a lot of other emerging technologies, but I do think there's something in quantum. What was the other question? What If that's your central prediction, that quantum is going to be very interesting, and I, I agree with you. Mm. I personally don't know whether it's five years, ten years, or 20 years' time. It's same, yeah, same about AI know. 20 years. I mean, I had a book in the 1970s on natural language processing, and it was saying blah, 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 this is how you do it, great. Well, actually, it's taken bloody, whatever, I don't know, almost 50 years to actually get somewhere yeah. in that field. I didn't know at the time whether it's going to be 5, 10, 15, 20. So quantum computing, yes, we don't quite know when. But this is a very silly question, but it's a kind of Donald, Donald Rumsfeld question. If something's going to surprise you, what is it that's going to surprise you? <laughs> um, what would surprise me? I think things that might surprise me is, okay, general AI, like, something that I believe is sentient for me. That would be a huge surprise to me if people created something that passed the Turing test in, you know, in very, very strict versions of it, created something we believe is sentient. That would very much surprise me. The You know, the kind of stuff we see in science fiction films. Right. Okay. Well, we, we touched on that uh, one, that kind of uh, what I consider a category error in the uh, new uh, special podcast. I won't re- rehearse all that again. Suffice it to say that roughly every wisdom, no, it's not, not roughly, every wisdom tradition in the, in the world from people that um, have done things for tens of thousands of years, whether it be by meditation, whether it be by drumming, or whether it be by hallucinogens or, or any of these things, it's true to say that they have all, without exception, basically taken the perspective that consciousness is something in and of itself, which is sort of separate from matter. But anyway. Yeah, dualism. Yeah, Cartesian dualism. Yeah, and I mean, I, I naturally sort of like to believe that Consciousness is separate to the thing it's being played out in, but I can't logically see why that would be the case. Good. Right. Okay. Well, let, let's get on to not coffee, but chai. Uh-huh. Uh, but before I wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there and my brand partner for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions retirement worldwide. The leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. TheEnlistedBoard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. Okay, Tristan, so maybe you'd just like to tell us a little bit about what uh, Chai's been up to over the last four years, where you're going to, and what you need 
more off to get even bigger and better than you are today. I would love to. Thank you, Mike. So over the last four years, we've built a product that forecasts raw material prices based on all these different interesting data sets and sell those forecasts to people who have physical risk. People who are not speculators, not hedge funds, speculating on you know the price of copper going up so they can buy some futures, but actually people who make the cars, pharmaceuticals, biscuits that we buy as consumers. And we've had great success in doing that, but I've realised that a lot of companies aren't agile enough to act on those forecasts. If you're a huge corporate, you can maybe negotiate with your supplier and say, well, this price doesn't make sense to me, I would like this price. You might buy your inventory earlier, stick it in a warehouse or buy it later if you think the price is going to go down. Or you might be able to budget more effectively and set your prices based on our forecasts. But actually, a lot of companies can't do those things. So we're building an instrument that can transfer that price risk away, effectively an insurance product. So we can go to a large corporate or actually any size company and say, you make this thing out of cocoa, wheat, sugar and plastic. When those are volatile, it's very hard to work out what your margin is going to be when you sell this product and therefore how much you should sell it for. For this much percentage, click here and we'll underwrite that price risk for you. So when the price of your plastic in the wrapper of your chocolate bar goes above this much per tonne, we will pay you that price difference. So we're becoming a proper fintech and not just forecasting prices, but putting our money where our mouth is and underwriting that price risk. And that's where we're going now. So are you actual underwriters taking a principal risk or are you brokers just laying off the transaction for a, a fee with some um, reinsurance? The latter to start with. So you can think of us as an MGA in the short term where we rent the risk capital from others and get a cut of the action. So you're more of an insure tech than you were four years ago. We are very much an insure tech now. Yes, in fact, that's how we think of ourselves. Oh, how exciting. And in terms of going forwards, what do you need more of to be even bigger and better than you are today? Risk capital, the underwriting capacity from reinsurers. Right. So you need to, lots of all the reinsurers listening should check you out and contact you this afternoon. They certainly should. We've got a product that's uncorrelated in its returns from other asset classes and is well, it's very profitable for a, a reinsurance company. Ah, excellent. Well, I mean, there have been a number of episodes, of course, on the whole attracting capital into one sector from an, another sector where it's never come from in, in, in the past to get around this de-siloization, for example, wrapping up things in some kind of vehicle that, say, pension funds might be able to invest in. Yes. yes. Because if, for the sake of argument, you're flogging risk to reinsurers, there's a limited number of reinsurers, they all know what the market is and they sort of say this is the kind of price. But then if you, if you can introduce a new category of um, investor, you can potentially get greater competition there. Anyway, that sounds very interesting. It's, an, uh, it's a nice evolution slash pivot, but perhaps more of an ev evolution from where you were before. And I wish you every success in that and try going forwards. Thank you very much, Mike. Really appreciate that. Yes, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance 
We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Watch the fire light. 